0: Republicans learned a lot from 2020. I see 2020 as a dress rehearsal, and they, sh- they appear to have every intention of not only having the ability, but the will and interest in actually overturning election.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Could a radicalized Republican Party steal the next election? Harvard professor of government Stephen Levitsky is concerned that that's exactly what may happen. Levitsky is co-author with fellow Harvard professor Daniel Ziblatt of the international bestseller, How Democracies Die. Levitsky was a guest on the Vermont Conversation last summer. On this Vermont Conversation, we talk about where we've come since and the threat that American democracy can slip away. Professor Stephen Levitsky, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thanks. It is always a pleasure, David.
1: Uh, You wrote How Democracies Die during Trump's first year in office. And in it, you explain how democracies get subverted, including, as you say, capturing the referees, buying off opponents, and rewriting the rules of the game. So now that you've seen a full term of a Trump presidency, what did you miss? How else do democracies get subverted?
0: Well, I, I... I think democracies get subverted in, um, in in much the same way as we laid out in the book. What I think we missed in the U.S. case, I, I think it it was turned out to be far worse than we expected, uh, and we were considered pretty um, alarmist at the time. But what we missed was the um, the transformation of the Republican Party. We um, focused a fair amount on Trump in the book. Uh, for good reason. We uh, held the Republican Party responsible for failing to gatekeep, for nominating him, for supporting his, his candidacy, despite the fact that he was clearly authoritarian. But we didn't treat the Republicans, and we didn't view the Republicans as an authoritarian party. We saw it, we believed at the time, and we wrote, that there was a faction of mainstream Republicans that would probably, uh, particularly in the Senate, uh, led by people like John McCain, who was alive at the time, who would be able able and willing to draw the line at, uh, at, at some of Trump's worst abuses. We could not have imagined a majority of House Republicans voting to overturn election. We could not imagine the vast bulk of the Republican Party ultimately condoning Trump's uh, inciting of the the January 6th storming of the the Capitol. And we could not have imagined, although maybe we should have, the Republican Party across the country taking steps, particularly, not only, but particularly since January 2021, to prepare um, in all likelihood to steal or try to steal the, the, the 2024 election. That's um, that is the behavior, not of an authoritarian leader, not of a party that's enthralled, not a, that that's a cult or enthralled to a uh, to uh, um, a charismatic leader by Trump. But it is bottom up an authoritarian party, and we missed that in twenty seventeen.
1: How did we get here? Um, how did this happen? Uh, that authoritarian is so. F- enthusiastically embraced and democratic norms are so casually discarded?
0: Uh, you know, I think we began uh, in a very tentative way down that road in How Democracy die, but the picture and, and, you know, that's that's the million dollar question. And until we nail the answer, we're not going to be able to, sh- to steer clear of, of, of the threat we face. Our take is that this is primarily a reaction to the arrival, the imminent arrival of multiracial democracy. That um, steps towards greater inclusion in democracies pretty frequently lead to authoritarian reaction. They don't always kill democracy, but uh, they often um, assault them. And whether it's, you um, late 20th, and, or excuse me, late 19th, early 20th century Germany, whether it's uh, Chile, mid-century, uh, or Brazil, um, both in the 1960s and today, when de- when democracies democratize, when they when they become more inclusionary, there's usually pushback. Um, the United States, as you very well know, has uh, sort of nominally reached multiracial democracy in 1965 and has been edging excruciatingly slowly but seriously towards being a multiracial democracy in practice over the last half century. And I think as that has become real, as we've both grown more diverse through immigration and become more, although not fully, racially egalitarian, um, it's triggered a pushback, it's triggered a... uh, essentially a white nationalist response that i think is at the at the core of the of of what we're seeing today political parties it's it's a it's not a common occurrence for a mainstream small d democratic party no matter what you think of the republican party in the 20th century it was for the most part mentally democratic um it's not usual for an established democratic party to turn authoritarian. It's a a pretty rare occurrence. And Danny and I theorize that a couple of things have to be going on for a party to do that. One, the party has to fear that it's not gonna be able to win future elections. And two, the cost of losing has to be exceptionally high. There needs to, uh, the party really needs to fear that uh, catastrophic consequences if it loses. So if the party thinks it's gonna be able to win the future or the cost of losing isn't that high, parties can deal with it. But but, But parties become authoritarian when they really, really begin to fear losing. And I think that's what's happening today. Not only does a party based almost exclusively on white Christians have a hard time thinking about winning elections in the medium term, but a party that represents white Christians, a, 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 a group that dominated every aspect of our society, economy, politics, society, culture, for two centuries, and is now losing that dominant status. That's a, that's a great threat. Um, or that, that's, a, that's a perceived threat. Um, that's not just losing election, that's losing your country. And so that combination of sort of a medium term electoral challenge, and the perceived losses associated with um, the Republicans not being able to win elections, that's what we think is driving this this authoritarian.
1: You wrote recently in The Atlantic, uh, quote, the greatest threat to American democracy today is not a repeat of January 6th, but the possibility of a stolen presidential election. Why do you think That's a very real possibility.
0: Um, First and foremost, because Republicans are actively taking steps to do it. They are putting in place uh, administrative changes. They're passing laws and making administrative changes to allow them and, and precisely in critical swing states, Republican controlled swing states, Arizona, Texas. Georgia, um, Missouri, they, uh, they're taking steps to do what Donald Trump tried and failed to do in 2020. So Donald Trump uh, you know, didn't really have a plan, uh, wasn't very competent, did not have a comp, didn't have, had neither a plan nor a competent team and failed miserably in his effort to, um, to overturn the election, right? It, it is a terrible shock and a terrible blow to democracy anytime the incumbent president tries to overturn the election. But Trump didn't do a very good job, didn't have the tools to do it, didn't have the knowledge to do it. But the Republicans learned a lot from 2020. I see 2020 as a dress rehearsal. Um, they learned what they needed to do. They, they, they learned which electoral authorities they need to control. They learned what kind of legal tools were available to be able to throw out votes. Uh, they and they've made they've made corrections in several states, uh, Georgia and Texas and Arizona are leading the pack, um, and they sh- they have appeared to have every intention of not only having the ability, but the will and interest in actually overturning elections. They also learned in 2020 something that I don't think I would have predicted four years ago that there's not, for Republicans, there's not an electoral or political price to be paid for overturning an election. In fact, Republicans learned very clearly that they will be rewarded by their base, by their activists, by donors, if they uh, overturn an election that, that they claim or that their base presumes to be stolen. So there's no, bright, there's no red line that they won't cross because maybe the electorate will turn on them if they steal an election. Um, And the the other thing to keep in mind here is that this whole process will be legal or at least deemed legal. Um, This isn't going to be stealing votes in some illegal fashion. They will find technicalities upon which to uh, now that the Georgia state legislature or the Georgia state election board has the authority to override local election officials. In Democratic Party strongholds, they will find legally kosher um, grounds upon which to throw out their rivals' ballots, or they can't. Um, it, it doesn't. Our elections rely a lot on forbearance. They they rely on people saying, "Well, you know, this person ten uh, percent of their signature is not on the dotted line, uh, but obviously the intent was, was was there," and they you know. We should give them their vote. Um, But you can toss votes out on all sorts of technicalities. And Republicans took a bunch of steps that we talk about in in more detail to make it possible and, in fact, make it like that votes will be tossed out only in certain areas based on technicality. And that could turn a close election.
1: Now that uh, Trump and Senator Mitch McConnell succeeded in installing three Trump justices, on the Supreme Court, do you think the checks and balances still work?
0: Um, that's a big question. I mean, they they work in in, in some capacity, right? The uh, conservatives have a lot of checks on uh, on liberal power, right? There's there an awful lot that the, that the Biden administration cannot do because of a of a of a, of a, of a Senate that is, that is skewed towards Republicans, is skewed toward rural areas, and a, essentially a packed Supreme Court. So it is, um, so that our institutions work very well as a check on democratic power. I, I wouldn't go as far as some, which is to say that the next time we have a Republican president, you know, all, the institutions are gonna roll over and there'll be no more checks. I think that uh, there, there is still some professionalism and in independence even in this very conservative Supreme Court. But uh, on a whole bunch of issues, beginning with voting rights, conservatives have a, uh, well, we now have in place um, a a set of institutions that in the right circumstances provide a a basis for a frightening amount of minority rule, put it that way. So, So one person's checks and balances become another, or one party's checks and balances Become another part of money, and um, and that's the danger for me.
1: Well, let's talk about the filibuster. You've argued that uh, you know the undermining of norms, the doing away with norms, and the filibuster is, as we know, not a law; it is a, a norm. Uh, but it's that a rule. doing what's that? It, it's a basically a rule. It's a rule. So that the undermining these traditional rules and norms is undermining democracy. Do you think we should get rid of the filibuster?
0: I do. Um, and a couple, couple of points re- in relation to where we were in the book. First of all, things are worse than we perceive them to be in the book. The Republicans are m- a much greater, much more sustained threat to democracy than we anticipated when we wrote the book. And so I, I think that the days of, you know, hoping we can kind of re-equilibrate and, uh, and sort of hold on to pre-existing democratic norms, I think those are mostly passed. That said, uh, my position in the filibuster, I think, is entirely consistent with the argument we made about forbearance in the book. What we argue in the book is that the, the, the norm around the norm of forbearance around the filibuster was that it's supposed to be a rule that is deployed with restraint. Like the filibuster was okay. I mean, the filibuster did block a couple of really important democratic reforms, so therefore it did historically a lot of damage in the United States. But, setting that aside, the filibuster was minimally compatible with democracy, if used with restraint. So between 1917 and the election of John F. Kennedy, a good chunk of the 20th century, filibuster was used once a year. The, that norm of restraint disappeared over the course of the next half a century. It eroded slowly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and just completely went out the window under Obama. To the point where today, and this is the point that I don't understand why people like Joe Manchin don't see this. Today, for, for the first time, the filibuster is used with every piece of legislation. It's just simply a routine mechanism. Of obstructionism, cre- it's, it's created, and this was not true in the 1950s. It's created a situation where you need 60 votes to pass legislation in the U.S. Senate or in the U.S. Congress. That's not that is a completely different institution than it was in the last century, and that that is because the norm of forbearance that sustained and made that institution function have been blown to bits. So there's no norm left to preserve. The, the idea that you would preserve the filibuster as it exists in 2021 out of some desire to preserve norms is just utterly ridiculous those norms are gone those norms are out the window there's nothing left to preserve so the 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 what the, the institution I want to kill today is a very very different institution from the very debatable one that we had in the last century so I have no compunction about about eliminating this this rule. So
1: getting the situation we're in now with voter suppression efforts, um, you note that Republicans have introduced 216 bills in 41 states uh, aimed at, uh, as you write, facilitating hardball electoral tactics, um, and that as of June, 24 of these bills had passed including in the battleground states of Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and Texas. So what tactics do you think will work to reform a radicalized GOP if this voter suppression goes ahead unchallenged?
0: Uh, it's going to be tough. I mean, I, I would, I would um, distinguish between two types of um, electoral abuse, which have two different kinds of solutions. One is... Voter suppression. Democrats have been planning for this for a while, right? The Republicans have been have been uh, trying have been taking uh, action to suppress the vote. So we get harder registered vote for a good decade now. And so the legislation that is now part of the For the People Act, the legislation that the Democrats have been pushing in the last couple of years, is a um, a pretty effective remedy to these tactics of voter suppression. Whether they get passed is obviously a very different matter. There's a second thing, which I think is actually much more dangerous, which is election subversion. And that is changes to the rules of administration that basically allow for the politicization and abuse of electoral authority. Um, That's a new one, right? That's mostly happening starting in January 2021. The Democrats had not been preparing for that. In some respects, they're fighting with the For the People Act. In some respects, they're fighting the last war. They're fighting off Republican initiatives in the last decade. Makes good sense. They did exactly what they ought to do. This was a use. The For the People Act is a useful correction for the photo suppression efforts in the last decade. They do not address the potential for election subversion that's emerged over the last seven months. And I am I'm not enough of a um, constitutional scholar or a scholar of, of, um, of U.S. legal uh, electoral law to have a really good sense of how to combat through, through federal legislation, how to combat these efforts to subvert election outcomes. And from what, I, from what little I know, it's actually a lot harder. It's not so clear how it will be done.
1: So you're a scholar of the rise and fall of authoritarianism around the world, particularly in Latin America, in your case. What have you seen elsewhere in terms of successful movements that have toppled or challenged or slowed this kind of creeping authoritarianism?
0: It's it's not so easy to answer that because um, there aren't very many cases like the United States. So there are advantages and disadvantages. The advantage U.S. has over places like Hungary or Venezuela or Russia or Turkey, the great advantage we have is we have a really strong democratic, small D, but also big D, democratic opposition, right? The Democratic Party, in comparative terms, is well-organized, it is well-financed, it is uh, electorally very viable, Uh, it's not easily pushed around. We have a, a... very big private sector, at least a chunk of which is, um, you know, nowhere near the, the Trumpist coalition. Uh, we have pretty effective media. We still have pretty effective courts. Uh, a, a whole professional class of lawyers. There, this the opposition. In the U.S. is not going to go away. So a a move. It, it is entirely possible. It's frighteningly possible that the 2024 election will be stolen. I, I, I'm not predicting that it's going to happen. I'm saying it's a very high risk. this If that happens, we're not going to slide into Venezuela. We're not going to slide into Russia. We're not going to slide into single-party rule. The opposition, the Democrats, small and large people, are too strong for them. Um, it's more likely that we're headed towards a period of um, what could be a relatively short period of authoritarianism. Um, and a lot of conflict, instability, and potentially violence. It's it's very difficult for me, at least uh, with my small brain to sort of foresee a medium term in which you've got an authoritarian party hammering away at at our institutions, but an opposition that's quite strong. uh, And can can, can win elections, uh, will certainly control a number of the most powerful states in the country, um, can mobilize a lot of people, you know the the other cases like this with evenly matched forces have 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 slid into civil war, right? In some ways, the best comparison to the U.S. in the mid nineteenth century.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not predicting civil war either. It's hard. It's very it's very hard for me to foresee how this will evolved.
1: When Joe Biden was a presidential candidate, he reportedly carried around a marked up copy of "How Democracies Die." in an effort to explain the urgency of his campaign against Donald Trump. Now that he's president, what do you hope he takes away from the book in terms of actions and how he conducts his presidency?
0: That's a great question. Um, Look, the, the, the most fundamental point, and I think he has taken that point, I'm very, very, I'm not sure it's because of the book, but I think he does get, that uh, we can't take our our democracy for granted. We can't take our institutions for granted. I think that most Americans a decade ago, but particularly Americans of Biden's generation, um, really took our 20th century democracy for granted. Believe that no matter how uh, people like Trump were seen as kind of a a blip, but, but American democracy was assumed, believed and even assumed to be fundamentally sad, I think Biden has come around to the belief. I don't think he had it ten years ago. I didn't have it ten years ago. I, I think Biden's come around to the belief that our democracy is fundamentally in danger. That there's a real threat, and it's not just Trump. I think he knows that there's that there's a real risk. And you know, if, if we contributed even a a drop to that, then I'm I'm very very pleased. There's an issue that I'm a little more concerned about, which is that our book. Paid a lot of attention to, de- to the preservation of democratic norms, or at least pointed to the negative consequences of losing those norms. And I think one of the things that Biden liked about the book—and this may not be a good thing—is that uh, is I, I you know I think I think we we pointed to something that was real about 20th century democracy in the United States, and that he holds dear, and that I think he may have an attachment just as. Going back to our earlier conversation about the filibuster, they have an attachment to things like the filibuster and, and certain norms that are not coming back. And I think our, our book, I worry a little bit in my, in my um, you know, unhappiest moments late at night that we may have, um, that that may be one of the things he liked about the book, that we may have sort of reinforced that. in him. Your But our next book of- is, is going to shake him of that.
1: What's the next book?
0: Uh, Daniel and I are just beginning a, uh, a book that is sort of a follow-up, but that makes a case for uh, why we need pretty far-reaching institutional change, constitutional change, to, to sort of complete this country's democratization and to ensure the, the transition to multiracial democracy. Hmm.
1: You're part of a group, Protect Democracy. Uh, explain what it is and why you're supporting
0: it. Direct democracy, to my knowledge, is the first um, pro-democracy organization in, in the United States, or at least, um, I mean, that's not true because civil rights organizations are obviously pro-democracy organizations, but the first group born, at least certainly post-2016, aimed at preserving our democracy, right? In, in countries like Argentina, it, it, it's obvious why such organizations exist and have long existed. Uh, Argentines have lost their democracy many times in the last century. And so there are many Argentines who, who uh, for whom it is, it, it is very preserving democracy, is a very salient issue. It never was in the United States, other than achieving democracy via the civil rights movement. And so these guys were among the first to say, you know, wow, democracy is threatened. We need to, to hire a bunch of lawyers and think about how to preserve our, our democracy. Um, They're mostly led by uh, folks from the Obama administration who um, are are pretty well connected to the Democratic Party establishment, um, but also, I think, much more concerned about the fate of our democracy than than your average D.C. Democrat. I like them because they have had their eye on the ball, I think, um, pretty Pretty effectively since since they began, they 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 were focusing on the nuts and bolts of our institutions. They were focusing on the way in which the attorney general's office and o- other key agencies in the United States were changing the rules, were changing norms, were changing personnel in ways that could in ways that never show up in the newspapers or rarely do, and that most of us are not. Uh, don't have the time and don't have the legal training to, to, to even notice, but that matter. And these guys were watching them. They were documenting them. Uh, when important, they were raising attention to them uh, throughout the Trump presidency. And they have now, I think, also to their credit, um, rather than sort of you know, taking a bow after Trump was defeated, they have refocused on the, the threats to come. And they're focusing on the things that we were talking about today, uh, voter suppression and in particular voter subversions. And they're among, among the first that began to really raise public awareness of what it means that in the state of Georgia or Texas or Florida, um, Republicans now have the ability to step in and overturn election results and throw out balance in a way that um, I think most of us would would have thought unimaginable.
1: You mentioned that your new book will look at uh, proposing far-reaching institutional reforms to protect democracy. Can you give us a preview of what those would be?
0: Well, again, we're just starting the book, so I don't want to go on on record saying things that end up not being in the book. We haven't written a word yet. We're just beginning (laughs) the research. Um, But in general terms, we believe that uh, the United States is uh, far has far too many counter-majoritarian institutions. It is insufficiently majoritarian, and in what what and that means it is insufficiently democratic. Uh, any democracy in which um, the, uh, the, the 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 majority vote is not. Easily, systematically translated into into political power, is is problematic. Um, any democracy that affords a partisan minority sustained systematic veto power over uh, over uh, policy and key reforms is, is is problematic. The United States, we tend in the United States to um, to cherish, to deeply value the age of our infancy, right? We, we treat almost as um, biblical the institutions that were designed by our founders in the 18th century. Those are pre-democratic institutions. Most other democracies elsewhere in the world, even very high functioning democracies in Europe have gotten rid of their 18th and their early 19th century pre-democratic institutions. And we've gotten rid of some of ours. We've changed the, the, the nature, of the, the character of some of them, but some of them persist. And um, the Electoral College is, um, is, an, abom- is an abomination that it, it has the potential now, given the, it, 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 the, um, the, its partisan electoral bias, to throw our democracy in this severe crisis. Uh, and, and it has the potential to be to, be, to provide the, the constitutional foundation for minority rule. Um, so that's an obvious one that needs to go. The Senate is a deeply undemocratic institution. A Couple hundred years ago, it, it, was, not a, it was not considered a big deal among democratic theorists that um, a, a low population state like Vermont, sorry to pick on Vermont, would have as much political power in the Senate as, as a high population state like, like New York, or Wyoming, California today. Um, It is deeply undemocratic, and it has um, now um, real political and partisan consequences.
1: All right. Well, Professor Stephen Levitsky, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Stephen Levitsky is a professor of government at Harvard University and author of the international bestseller, How Democracies Die. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org vermontconversation Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.